Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, S. Robert Powell, the author of The Delaware and Hudson Canal Company. Robert Powell, author of The Delaware and Hudson Canal Company Gravity Railroad. Uh, if somebody buys this, what do they get? They get a very complex series of, of, of DVDs about, about a railroad company that, that, that transformed American life. They, uh, the, uh, the first five volumes in the series are about the technological aspects of the railroad that was rebuilt five times in the course of the 19th century. The other volumes in the series uh, embellish the picture of, of, of the railroad as it expanded throughout northeastern Pennsylvania and into New York and, and elsewhere. And uh, it, it's a very broad picture of, of uh, society. Later in the series, there's going to be a volume. I'm looking forward to doing that. I, I'm calling it The Quality of Life in, in uh, I'm not sure exact, what exact title I might have in mind, but it's on quality of life. And uh, so that will, that will be uh, the life associated with people working on the railroad. And, and it, there's, more, there's more to it than just the technological uh, uh, coal mining and uh, the, 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 the dirty hands kind of aspect of coal mining. There's the life as it goes on in a, uh, in a civilized, urbane kind of way. That, that volume would be very interesting to write on because it, it, the subject has never been written. A lot of, written on. A lot of people seem to uh, get a lot of energy out of the, the oh, we were, we were poor and lived in a tar paper shack and life was awful. But that's not true. I mean, it, it, life, was, life was rough. Uh, lots of uh, lots of medical problems, uh, but life was good. People came here from all over all over Western Europe to start life over again. They came here to better themselves. They didn't come here for worse conditions. They came here for better better conditions, and uh, so life life was good. Uh, if you worked hard, it'll be better for your children than it was for you. And so there's a, there's a very optimistic kind of uh, pull to that uh, to that volume. But there are other aspects of, of, of the of the DNH which are uh, have never been have never really been focused on in detail, and I'm going to focus on many of those aspects uh, in the, in the upcoming volumes. Now, first of all, this this isn't in book form. This is in CD form, as you said. Well, why why go this way instead of in a traditional book? The um, this this format appeals to me greatly because of the. Um, uh, of the capacity for photographs and maps and charts and things, and uh, and it's also it's good for it's good for me putting it together, but it's also good for the uh, for the reader because depending on the on the capacity, uh, the electronic capabilities of 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 the of the owner's uh, hardware, uh, you could look at them on a screen that's you know two feet by four, or you could look at them on on a small desktop, or so that the uh, and there are lots of photographs in it and. Uh, I like the expandability of it. I mean, it's it's easy to revise, easy to make it make it make additions to, and uh, and uh, I love the com compact nature of it all. It it uh, it's it's quite wonderful to, to know that there are 
in the first uh, 10 volumes, several thousand pages, and you can sort of hold it in, your, in one hand, or you can put it on your flash drive, and there it is, the size of your thumb, several thousand pages, you know. Well, I tallied up as 1,362 pages in this five, the volume six through 10. What is it about the Delaware and Hudson Railroad, Gravity Railroad Canal that is so historically important that it merits this kind of volume? Most of this has, most of these uh, aspects of the railroad have never really been written on. There's a lot, there's a lot of new material. There's a lot of, uh, for example, the, the volume six uh, on, on water power. No one has ever written a word on, on, on water power and, and its use on the, on, on the gravity uh, railroad. One thinks of uh, water power, one thinks of canals and, and grist mills and this kind of thing. But I mean, they used, uh, there was a series, there were half a dozen of these planes on the railroad that, that had, had gigantic water wheels that uh, provided the energy to get the coal up these inclined planes and to market. The, uh, the, the, the discovery of, 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 of water wheels on the railroad is, was really remarkable. Uh, a woman uh, by the name of uh, Jane Gritman was a very, uh, very academically minded lady in the 19th century, kept lots of scrapbooks and things, and she, she had a way of organizing them that makes it it's wonderful for historians to look at because she has things grouped in, 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 in by, by topic in many cases. At one point, the, the local newspapers organized a series of, of these sort of short, uh, you know, two-paragraph articles. What is it? You know, what do you, what do you, what do you know about this? The, uh, the railroad was... Um, making a, a coal pocket, it's called, it's a coal retail structure um, in, in Carbondale, and they started making excavations to, to, to put the foundation for this building in. And they came and they thought, what on earth have we come across? They, they ran into something as they were digging in the ground. What they, what they discovered was a gigantic water wheel that had been buried, and this, this, this stimulated several articles in the newspaper does anybody know what this water wheel is that we've just dug up at the base of Salem Avenue? Anybody know anything about it? And then all, all sorts, all manner of experts came forward saying, oh yes, it was this and it was that, and then back and forth. And finally, the appropriate people came forward and said, I helped, you know, operate a plane that had a water wheel on it, and let me tell you what, what this was all about. And so that opened the door to the whole subject of water power on, on the Gravity Railroad. And I then I then began, I then re reversed myself and started looking at, at earlier maps and earlier documents from the point of view, is there something on water, water wheels or water power that I've been overlooking? And I was, uh, I was astonished to look at maps that I had studied carefully from the point of view of rail lines and streets and things. So if you focused on, on rails as you're looking at a map, you're looking for the traditional, what, what, a rail, what a railroad would look like. Suddenly I was looking at the same map from the point of view of looking for waters and waterways and raceways and canals and things. And suddenly they were all there that I wasn't seeing on my first go around because I, did, I wasn't expecting them to be useful in a, in a kind of connected to the railroad. And so then, I, then that just opened the door and just kept, I kept going in one direction after another trying to find out more about it. And, and, then, I, and I, then I in fact did uncover a lot of, of um, a lot of material on 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 the water wheels and uh, well, this is your second time on this program. Uh, but for people who didn't see the first one, can we talk about some of the basics? It's got a couple of key words in the title: uh, gravity, canal, railroad, and um, incline. Can you talk about how the whole system worked? Yes, the um, 
the coal cars are brought in on a, on a level to the to the base of, a, of an inclined plane, and then the inclined plane was like like an old-fashioned sort of roller coaster, or maybe a modern one too. The cars were hooked onto a cable at the base of the plane and pulled up the inclined plane by a stationary engine, which which was at the top of the plane. The engines were stationary, and the cars moved to the end. At the top of the plane, the cars were disconnected from the uh, cables. Then they sort of coasted on a, on, a, on a level between the head of one plane and then the foot of the next one. And then they were, they were attached again to a cable and then pulled up the next inclined plane. So it was like a series of steps. They were being pulled up a mountain. And uh, the, the obstacle was uh, getting, them, getting the coal cars from the valley floor in the Lackawanna Valley getting them a thousand feet in the air to the top of the Musick Mountain above Carbondale. And so they were pulled up and up and up. So inclined planes and then levels and then the stationary engines were at the heads of, of, the, uh, of the planes. How and far would they drift when they were rolling free? Well, they actually, they were, they were, they varied each plane. On some planes, if the, if the, if the, the grade of the mountain was rather steep, there would be a short level and then they would connect them up again. Sometimes there are a couple of levels that were like 20 miles long where the cars just coasted for like 20 miles. But it was a slow, gradual? A, a slow, yeah, gradual, no. a slow, gradual uh, uh, process until they got up to the top of the mountain. And then on the top of the mountain, they lowered the cars. They were attached to cables to lower the cars. And then they coasted, lowered them down, like, like down a series of steps. The base of the mountain on the other side of the mountain at Waymart, the cars then coasted uh, 10 miles into Honesdale, where the cars were then, the coal cars were then emptied into canal boats. And a canal, a canal functions by gravity as, as did this railroad because the canal, the canal boats go into a, into a lock, the water is let out of the lock, then the, then the canal boat goes down. So it's like a step. So, like, so a canal from, from the top of the mountain above Carbondale all the way to the Hudson River, 118 miles, the, the locks in the canal, they, they essentially the boats were going down, down this, these inclines. So, it's, so the whole system from, from the mines to the, uh, to the Hudson River uh, functioned in terms of gravity uh, because the railroad was functioning by gravity and the uh, and the canal functions by gravity. They had to work very hard to get the coal cars to the top of the mountain but once they got the cars to the top of the mountain it was largely a free ride from there to the Hudson River 120 miles away so it was a uh, it was a uh, an amazing uh, use of, of, of energy and uh, using natural forces and weight the weight of the coal to provide its own forward uh, momentum. A little more specifics about when and where. Where's Carbondale and when was this all taking place? This all began on October 9, 1829. Carbondale is at the, at the head of the Lackawanna Valley. The Lackawanna Valley and the Wyoming Valley, that, in, that includes Carbondale, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, so northeastern Pennsylvania. And uh, this property became uh, a part of the uh, uh, the, the Wirtz brothers acquired much of this property. These were, these were uh, Philadelphia dry goods merchants who provided um, uh, military uniforms to the federal government in the War of 1812. And in, in payment for their, for their product, for the, for the uniforms, they were given uh, what, what I think probably the donors thought of, given that land in, in northeast of Pennsylvania, nothing but trees and woodchucks and nothing else, you know, who, who wants it? So they sort of give, it, give, give, give this land to them. And the Wirtz brothers were happy to, to accept it. And uh, as it turns out, they had the last laugh because they were given essentially the largest anthracite deposit in North America, 484 square miles of coal, millions and mil trillions of dollars worth of coal. 
um, which at the time nobody knew how to burn it properly. So there was a whole learning process. How do you burn anthracite coal? It's not just like you can't just sort of hold a match to it. You've got to have the right amount of air around the coal in order to get the and to get coal to burn. But anyhow, it was it was la given land given to the Wurtz brothers uh, by the government, and it turned out to be quite a quite a wonderful gift. And this was all in in northeastern uh, Pennsylvania. It's a very it's a very finite area of of anthracite coal. And there's anthracite coal elsewhere in America, but it's the, it's the largest deposit uh, in in North America. And uh, that was what uh, they then. Uh, had that, that was the product they were, they were to market. The southern part of the coal field uh, that was being that coal was being taken down rivers like the Delaware to Philadelphia, but the Wirtz brothers controlled the northern part of the coal field, and so what they had to find a separate market because the, the southern market was was controlled by operators in the southern part of the coal field, so the, they set their eyes on on New York as as a target for their market. And in order to get in order to get their coal to market, they had to create this technology, get this 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 canal, and this railroad over this mountain initially. And uh, the remarkable thing about these these uh, these these Wirtz brothers and and the people that they were working with is that they they and this was really characteristic of the D.N.H. from from the beginning of the century on. They always they they knew enough to get the right people involved to solve their problems for them. They were excellent managers. They they literally recruited the uh, the uh, in building the canal the, the 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 construction team for the Erie Canal in upstate New York. The Erie Canal had just been finished in 1825, and uh, at that point the uh, the Worth brothers recruited the Benjamin Wright and John Jarvis and other people James Archibald who were part of the of the of the technological skill package associated with the, with the Erie Canal and they brought them to northeastern Pennsylvania so it's like this amazing Erie Canal and then even before the Erie Canal was finished they were building that same crew was working on the DNH canal had anything like this been done before with all the inclines and police? It, it, uh, in America, there were two, or th there were two other uh, examples uh, of, that were rudimentary uh, ex expressions of, the, of, of, of sort of of the same principle. But in uh, Jim Thorpe, there was an inclined plane where, where cars were, were lowered down just one plane. Uh, it, 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 was, it, was, it was a, a tram road, essentially. The cars sort of coasted down, and then they were pulled up another plane. It wasn't a complete system like uh, like like the like the DNH had in Carbondale, and there was also a a, a tram railroad in uh, at Breeds Hill, Massachusetts, that was established when they were making the Bunker Hill Monument to get the granite from the quarries down to the water level to get the water from the, to get the granite to the site where the Bunker Hill Monument now stands. So, but they were they were they were both largely the, the same principles but on, on, on a very restrained scale one plane like he said but this this was this was such a the unusual thing about the uh, what the what the DNH did was it was such a complete system 125 miles long from uh, from the uh, from the coal mines to the uh, to the uh, Hudson River the thing which really strikes me as being in, in dozens of ways, the DNH is remarkable. One of the most remarkable things about this 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 transportation system they created was, is it, it is in a way an expression of Henry Ford and his production line. You know, a hundred years before Henry Ford, the uh, the and I say that because 
the miners were in the mines getting the coal, putting it in a coal car. They handed off that coal to someone who, to, who connected the coal car to a mule and pulled it to point B. The person at point B handed it, handed it off to somebody who got it up, up a plane in the mines and got it out. And then from the mines, it was taken by another group of people to the base of, so we say, plane number one. And there were people that there were there was a footman at the base of plane. There, there were footmen at the base of each plane. At the base of plane number one, there was a footman whose only job was to connect the coal cars to the cable and send them on their way. There was a headman at the top of the plane whose job it was to disconnect the cars. So th what, the, what, the, what the principle involved is, is that the workers were stationary and the work came to them, which is, which is the Henry Ford thing, the, 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 the conveyor belt. So what we, what we had operating in Carbondale in 1829 was like a, like a 125 mile long conveyor belt because the workers were all stationary. They lived along, along this, this whole transportation system. And, and, and their work came to them, they, do, they did their thing and handed it off to somebody else. That's really a, uh, that's a remarkable achievement uh, in American technology and in American history that it happened so early. You say in your book at the introduction to each of these chapters, each of these volumes, that the Industrial Revolution started in Carbondale, Pennsylvania, and you gave a specific date. October 9, 1829. The, uh, it, it's always hard to assign a specific date. When did the Reformation begin? When did the Renaissance begin? That kind of, those, it, it, it's a, uh, the temptation to come up with a, with a date is, is always great. And uh, it, on, the, on that particular day, I mean, there were, trumpets didn't go off and somebody said, no, we have just begun. The, that, that didn't happen, of course. But the, uh, what I mean by that statement in the broadest sense is that the, the anthracite coal that was taken out of the Lackawanna and Wyoming valleys in northeast Pennsylvania made possible the industrialization of America. Without that coal, it would not have happened because America at that point was in the midst of its first energy crisis. All of the trees essentially around all urban centers had been cut down. If, if, uh, if, if there's a wood-burning stove in your world, you know how quickly a wood, burn, how pile, a wood pile can disappear. It doesn't take long for a gigantic mountain of wood to, to disappear on a cold winter season. And so all around large cities, all the trees had been cut down. There, were, there was no fuel. And uh, America was in the midst of this energy crisis. And the War of 1812 worsened it all because the blockade of the eastern seaboard by the British made it impossible to import coal could have been imported from, from, from Great Britain, some coal, but not a, that would hardly take care of the, of the needs for the eastern United States. And there were also coal fields in Virginia, but that wouldn't have provided enough, that, that coal couldn't be brought into New England and to, to, to New York and Philadelphia and New England uh, to make it, uh, to take care of their energy needs. So they literally were without, they were, they were without a fuel. And uh, fortuitously, the, uh, this anthracite coal was discovered and then marketed in, in, uh, in, uh, in New York. And it was a huge success. I mean, the, they, they, uh, the, uh, the Wurtz brothers were, were such good marketing people. They, they, they took several tons of coal to New York and they heated this one coffee shop, the Tontine Coffee Shop on Wall Street, and then invited investors in to sort of get nice and warm in this warm coffee shop heated by anthracite coal. On one, one day, one afternoon in 1825, they sold a million and a half dollars worth of stock. It was the largest privately funded enterprise in American history to that point. I mean, it was one afternoon in 1825. And, and uh, 
And that's, uh, that's a million and a half dollars, not in our currency, but in their currency. So what, whatever the multiple might be in terms of what do you multiply that by, you know, 100 times or 200 to get the equivalent in modern day dollars. But, but a, a million and a half dollars in 1825 currency uh, to, to finance, the, um, to fina finance their, their, their enterprise. And so everybody realized immediately that this, this, this coal was a, 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 the answer to a problem. And with the, the coal now as, as a domestic fuel and as an industrial fuel, things began to happen big time. And so industrialization happened because they now, it was now, the coal could now be used in, in all sorts of manufacturing contexts. And uh, with this, it made it possible for the economy of America to change from essentially an agrarian economy to an industrial economy. And that transformation from agrarian to industrial was made possible by the, by the coal from the Lackawanna and Wyoming Valleys. So that, all of that sort of leads me to that one statement about it began on October 9, 1829. I, I know it's a nervy sort of thing to say, but in, in a way it's sort of a symbolic date because it, it sort of crystallizes the a, a beginning of a process. And I think the process of providing a fuel for, for America is an important moment, and with that, with that, with that, when that first those first cars left on October nine, it was the beginning of a whole new American adventure, and that coal not only went uh, to New York. When the coal the coal went to it went from 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 Carbondale to Rondout on the Hudson River, and then it was taken down the river. Most of it was taken down the river to New York City. A lot of it was taken up the Hudson River as well to Albany. Some of, it was, some of it was transshipped through the Champlain Canal up into Lake Champlain into Canada from the very earliest. Some, a, lot of, a lot of it was taken, out to the, uh, taken down to New York and then out into the Atlantic Ocean and shipped up the East Coast to, to Providence and Boston. This is in the 1820s. The DNH were, they were so good at market development. They sent it down the Eastern Seaboard and uh, as far as New Orleans. In, eight, in the 1820s, they were shipping coal to test markets and to establish markets as far as, as New Orleans. So it was, it, coal was going everywhere. It was going up the Hudson River to Albany and was being transshipped through the Erie Canal to the American Midwest. It was, every, every, everybody, needed, everybody needed a fuel and, and this coal was the answer. Was Carbondale the headquarters of the company? It was. Why Carbondale? Well, that was where, that was the, uh, that was where the, the railroad went over the mountain, and that was where the that, that was where the that was where the company really started. All the coal uh, from the Lackawanna and the Wyoming valleys initially came up the Lackawanna Valley to Carbondale to get over the mountain. That was the big obstacle: get over that mountain. How are you going to do it? And uh, that's that's where the, that, that's that's the reason for the gravity railroad. What was the town like at its peak of uh, industrial might? The, the, by, by the, at, its, at its peak, at the end of well, be prior to like World War II, uh, Carbondale was like a boom town. It was it was it was unbelievable prosperity. There was a high level of uh, of, of of civilization in there. In, in addition to the uh, in addition to the industrial uh, world that was all around it. I mean, it was a very very thriving, vibrant industrial city. In there was the, a lot of wealth. There was a lot of wealth. There were some. There is. There are still an amazing. The architectural heritage of of the uh, of the of the coal mining era is is strong and still there. There are there are spectacular houses 
15, 18-room, gorgeous Victorian houses, some of them designed by, by, by named architects. There was, there was one uh, designed by Andrew Jackson Downing, still there, in the middle of essentially a 10-acre park in the middle of town, designed by, by Downing, and, and uh, surrounded by a stone wall and, and, and a beautiful park environment, and, and, and many, many beautiful houses that are, that are still there. And uh, there, was, there, was, there was a level of civilization and, 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 and culture that was just one, one would, would not believe associated with all this industrial stuff going on around it. Was there a fancy social scene, like a uh, social elite, like, like John O'Hara would write about? There was indeed. There was a, in fact, the, uh, the, the, that social elite played, a, interestingly enough, played a, a very key role in the in the establishment of passenger service on on, on this on this railroad, one of your discs, which of, we, which of your which is uh, which is volume, volume eight. Volume eight. The uh, passenger service started because the the sons and daughters of some of these uh, wealthy uh, railroad barons uh, thought it would be sort of be sort of fun to ride up on the mountain on these cars and 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 and, and, and sort of for the adventure of it all. Other people did too, but they but they started out. Uh, Riding on these sort of makeshift uh, sort of passenger vehicles that were hardly they were sort of like glorified coal cars, but it was it, it, it became sort of a, a social event, kind of a game sort of thing. They would stop the coal cars. These folks would go off and uh, pick flowers or picnic and so on. There was an obsession in the 19th century with picking mayflowers, arbutus, trailing arbutus, and a lot of these. Uh, there, there, I have some most wonderful clippings where the names of 15 socialites would go to the mountain to pick mayflowers and there weren't even a there were no passenger stations there were, they would stop these cars they would get off and go into the woods spend the afternoon then they would get back they would stop coal cars get they would get on and then they bring them back to, back to town finally the dnh decided this is really a uh, this we can capitalize on this people are having a lot of fun riding this this new means of transportation and uh, they then began to build these, these, these passenger vehicles, some of which were, they became more elaborate as the century went on. And uh, the, uh, one of the very interesting uh, spin-offs of all this is that the railroad, as, as the railroad was developing its technology to get more coal into, into the system to market, one of the things they decided to do was to, is to detach the light track from the loaded track. The loaded track was the cars going to market. The light track was the empty cars coming back. They decided that they could increase their capacity for getting coal to market if they separated that, separated the two uh, tracks. It, that's, that would take me an hour and a half to explain all the details that made that possible. But they, in so doing, they detached the light track and they sort of sent it way up the valley. And so it curved around down, came down in a very a long, sinuous curve, but gradually following the ridge line, and they 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 took it very very slowly. Down. So it was like a, a almost a 20 mile roller coaster ride you could take. One of the things which made it especially appealing was is that at one point a very famous section of the railroad was called Shepherd's Crook, and this was that the railroad the cars are coming down the mountain like this, then they curve around out on an embankment out into the valley. And then they curve back again and go, continue on their way. So that essentially, you, you could be on the, the, the front end. You could see the front end of the train and the back end of the train. You could sort of, it looks like two different trains, but it's the same train going around a curve. Fortuitously, this, this shepherd's crook, as they called it, because of its shape, um, 
went through some of the most astonishing scenery. There's a, there's a falls, there's a, there's, a, there's a Panther Creek is what it's called. And it's, it's, a, it's a, right from the top of the mountain right down to the floor of the Lackawanna Valley. And it's, and it's, and it's a series of waterfalls. Uh, there, there are probably five or six at least unbelievably beautiful waterfalls, some of them, you know, 100 feet high. They just come down the mountain in sort of steps over solid rock. And so these, these picnickers discovered these waterfowl, and so suddenly you got to go see the waterfowl, waterfalls. So suddenly there were a lot of people who, want, who, who wanted to go see the, to the, see the waterfalls, and they wanted to have the fun of riding on, 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 uh, uh, around this shepherd's crook, which was a very unusual thing because you were coasting along silently through the woods, you know, on these, on these rail cars. And uh, so that sort of opened the door to this business of getting passengers over the mountain. And uh, people, even bef before passenger service was inaugurated in 1877, lots of these, these, these provisional cars were established to get people on the mountain to have a look at this. So then finally the DNH decided in 77, we should we can we can we can make money by putting passenger cars on this. So they put passenger cars on this on this on this line from Carbondale to Honesdale. And people came from all over to ride the railroad for the thrill of riding on the railroad and to see this beautiful scenery because here you are on the top of this gorgeous mountain above the industrial valley below and uh, it was it was it was it was a beautiful sort of fresh air outdoor kind of experience and people from from people from from 100 miles away came to Carbondale to ride on this gravity railroad. And, but all of this was stimulated by, the, uh, by, by these sort of society ladies and gentlemen who wanted to go up on the mountain to sort of pick flowers and have a look at the scenery. And it was an excursion and entertainment thing as opposed to real public transportation. It was, it was, exactly, it was, it was an entertainment thing. In fact, the, and the railroad was, was smart enough to develop a series of switchbacks where the cars they could they could go up to the area where the uh, where the uh, the beautiful views were and and the, they could then the cars by a series of switching could just come could come back down they didn't have to go the whole way to the Honesdale to turn around it was sort of like take this take this outing from here to point A and then we'll switch you around and bring you back down to town and uh, then they then based on that initial success with these these outings to the mountain for picnics and things. They then developed passenger service, and then they quickly realized people were using. If we, if they were, they, the passenger service became very popular between Carbondale and Honesdale because the only way of getting from from those two, between those two cities was by stagecoach, which took forever and it was awful and dusty and dirty. And here we're riding on this in a, in a reasonably genteel kind of structure vehicle over the mountain, silently through the woods to Honesdale, and uh, they then. Uh, it became very popular. There were like four trains a day each way, passenger trains, people traveling between, between Carbondale and Honesdale. And, uh, well, how'd they get back? Because it would have been uphill going back. Well, they, 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 they did the same principles they used getting there, they did, they did, they did them in reverse. They just, they just pulled the cars. Initially, they had one track with sidings on it, and they had to pull. It was a very complex system of pulling cars around. They, eventually, they had two tracks, where one was the light track coming back, so that the passengers could come back on the, on the light track. They could go on the loaded track and come back on the lighter track. It was a very intricate system of pulleys and, and, and tracks and things. But they, um, but they then realized very quickly that, they, that there, were, there was money to be made with, this, with, with passengers, even though, even though the initial founders of the company had, were not, didn't care at all about passengers. They were, they, were, they were getting coal to market. 
But then this wonderful spin-off of it all, passenger service, they began to have groups of people traveling in large groups, 30, 40, 50 people wanting to go on one of these rides over the mountain. And so and they were coming from far and, far and wide to, to do this. And the DNH was, was making money because they were paying, pay, these people were paying for the privilege of riding on these, on these, on these cars. But then the DNH decided, well, if they're, if, they're, if they're willing to travel in groups like this and interested in traveling in groups like this, let's really capitalize on this. So they established on the top of the mountain a 600-acre picnic park, which is the subject of another volume here, Farview Park, which was, was, which was a, a, an amazing thing on the top of the mountain, a 600-acre park. And in the park, there was a dancing pavilion. There were picnic tables, tennis courts, a couple of observatories. Yeah, you have a big, tall ob observation tower. Big observation tower from which you could see 17 lakes, you could see, you could see, you could see the Poconos, you could see, it was your way, it's a very high, very high mountain. And you could get these unbelievable uh, vistas from the top of the mountain. And people came from all over to, for the pleasure of going to this, to, this, uh, to, this, uh, to this picnic destination on top of the mountain. And the DNH was selling tickets to, to, to go to this to Farview Park, which opened in 1885. They were, they were selling tickets for parties traveling in groups of one to 50, 50 to 100, 100 to 200, from up to groups of, they had, they had a special fare if you were traveling with 500 people or more to go to the top of the mountain. And these people were all paying from Carbondale uh, at least 50 cents a person to, to ride to the top of the mountain. 50 cents uh, uh, for a ride to the top of the mountain in, in the 1870s was a lot of money. It, a dollar a day was considered a very good wage. Many people in the 1880s would say that uh, I, I, can, I can hear uh, grandparents and others in my own family saying that, that uh, grandma and grandpa got married when grandpa was making a dollar a day. They felt they could then make the big step and get married. So a dollar a day was, a, was, like, was a wonderful wage. And yet they were willing to pay 50 cents a day to go to the top of the mountain, for, 50 cents for a ride to the top of the mountain. So it was a, so the DNH, uh, the, uh, at one point in the 1880s, they took 15,000 people in one day up to the top of the mountain for, for, for this park, a picnic park. There were, they, but the people were getting out of the, the grimy, dirty industrial valley, and they were going to the top of the mountain for the pleasure of, of fresh air and outing. And church groups from everywhere and fraternal and civic organizations, uh, I come across newspaper articles that say things like, 350 scholars from the Sunday School of the First Presbyterian Church went to Farview on Tuesday. The, the, the numbers are hard to believe. 350 children from, from one church Sunday School going to the top of the mountain. And people came from, literally from, from, from suburban New York and, and, and from for, for hundreds of miles all the way around the whole system to ride on this railroad because it was the first. What were the boom years of the of the passenger side of it, the excursion side? From after the Civil War up until really up to World War World War One. Oh, the, uh, the, the, it, it went on for quite a while. Uh, the uh, the uh, by the time into the 20th century, it continued because they, as many railroads did, the. Uh, they, they, they established a very wonderful amusement park uh, at, at Lake Lador, which was uh, one of the lakes that the railroad went by. And so, the, so the, the, the railroads were very smart in doing this because, you know, if people are going to go to the amusement park, they're going to ride your railroad to get there. So that they had the, 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 the numbers of people who rode on these, on these, on these rail cars, even into the 30s, you could, you could take a passenger train from Carbondale to Honesdale as late as 1930. And uh, 
but the but the really the the, the boom times were in in the eight from the eighteen the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, where it was the latest thing. It was the, all the rage, and, and people, the, the numbers are hard to believe, and so popular was the, uh, was as, a, as a destination. Uh, I find in, in 19th century newspapers lists of the excursions booked for April, and, and every day has got an excursion booked from, from, from all manner of civic and fraternal organizations throughout the whole summer. It was, it was, it was people were going to the, uh, to the, Fresh air and sunshine, uh, like people go to theme parks today. Everybody has, feels they have to go to some theme park halfway across America on their vacation. The same thing happened in, in the 19th century with, with this railroad, because all these people, these tens of thousands of people from all over Western Europe, were coming to the Lackawanna Valley and Wyoming Valley to work. Dirty, grimy, industrial stuff. But then weekends on Saturday, off to the mountain they went. And, and so they, they, uh, they, um, it was a very good balance of, of work and play. They, they, uh, they, uh, they, it wasn't all work and no play. They had a lot of, the, the, the quality of their life was good. It was rough, lots of disease, lots of accidents. Was not, life was not easy. However, life was good. Did these cars have brakes? They did have brakes. The, uh, the, uh, each, of the, uh, each of the passenger cars had, had a braking system on them, a very elaborate system of turning uh, uh, wheels to stop them. And, uh, and uh, the, the cars were always under very good control, either by brakes or on, or on cables. So, even, so when it was carrying coal or people, it would have somebody on it operating the brakes? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Each, each car had, 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 had people in charge of, of, of braking, uh, braking. And on the way down the mountain, especially because there was there were these long passageways where they could have they could have gone, uh, they were like going for twenty miles without any any uh, any ropes. They were freewheeling. How, how did the water power fit fit into this? How did they so use the, the water so the water power? wheels were put uh, on several of these planes. The water wheels were established at the heads of the planes, and so the, the water wheel and with and with the water going through uh, the wheel turning turning a series of gears, provided the power to pull the cars. Up to, up to the top of the, of the mountains, and the uh, the astonishing thing about the about some of these the water wheels on these planes is is that there's one plane just outside of Carbondale where there was a water wheel that is uh, almost no one believes me even though they believe me they won't they find it hard to believe that there was a water wheel there because how do you get water from here to there it's like and and enough to power an engine. They, 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 were as, they, were as, they were as clever as the Incas were, the way, they, the way the Incas moved water through the Andes. They, 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 ten miles away, they, 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 they began a raceway off of, 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 of a babbling brook, and they slowly took it along the edge of a mountain and took it around and took it around and way back. And all of a sudden, it appears at the top of this mountain because they, they, they followed the natural course of the water, but they started far enough upstream so they could, they could, they could get to the top of the mountain. And so then they established a pond at the top of the, at the top of the mountain, where they where the water from that pond then was sent by means of a raceway to the to the to the water wheel to get get the water wheel going, and then uh, that provided the power. And uh, they had the, the four of the five planes between Honesdale and uh, and Carbondale had water wheels on them, and it's it's really remarkable the the the, water, the source of the water. You look at it today; it's this babbling brook that it, it sometimes, in the middle of the summer, is like three feet wide and four inches deep. You know, and that's all the water there is. But yet, if water is going downhill, if it if you have a certain amount of distance, you can create a pond. 
and then they used, then they, they stored the water and then they used the set the water through a wasteway and then it fed into a wheel and then the wheel went around and it it really is just remarkable the uh, how big were the wheels some of them were gigantic the one at the top of of um, at plane number one uh, was 50 feet in diameter this huge wheel wa this wooden water wheel and there was one uh, at, at, in, there were th three of them in downtown Carbondale, but that one of them they discovered when they were digging around to put that building in I mentioned earlier. That, that water wheel was just buried on the ground when they, when they were no longer using water power. They just sort of knocked the wheel over and buried it and it, and it was there. But the, and the water wheels, in, there, were two, there were three of them in, in downtown Carbondale that functioned by, uh, by a canal. There was a canal that went through right, right through the middle of Carbondale. I think I am the only person who knows that. I, have to, I, 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 I take people to a map and I say, look, there it is. You know, believe me, trust me. And, 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 it's, and it's because it seems like such an unorthodox thing that there was a, car, there was a canal in the middle of Carbondale. But there was. I can prove it to you. And, and I, have, I think I have proved it. But uh, the, on a map, you can, you can see. But, but the remarkable thing is where they got the water from, how they got the water to that canal by this ingenious system of raceways and things to get the canal, to get, to get, the, get, to get the power where they needed it, and it worked. Is there any evidence of this today, if you go there poking around? Uh, yes, it, 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 would require, it would require someone to say, now if you, see, you look at that, you see, what, you see, that, you see that, that, that ditch there, that was the beginning of the, that was, that, it's not really much, you, the untrained eye, you, 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 you couldn't, you, someone could show it to you, and then you would say, ah, I see what you're talking about. But the, uh, but it, it's so it, it it's almost it's almost unbelievable, and because it's 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 such an unorthodox thing, unorthodox thing for people to think that there was a canal in the middle of downtown Carbondale, but there was, and then then there are people, and I, I'm always amused by it, and, it, and it's you know, their their intentions are good, but people say that some people who sort of like to offer these explanations of of historical facts say, oh that was the D&H Canal in Carbondale. Well, the D&H Canal didn't come into Carbondale. That started in Honesdale. This was, a, this was an industrial canal in the Lackawanna Valley. So it, it looks like it was like, like, a, like a canal from, from Honesdale, but you can't take a canal really over a mountain that's 2,000 feet in the air without having, you know, 100, plane, 100 locks to get it over there because that's a, that's a, big, that's a, big, uh, a big rise for it. How much of what's in all these pages is uh, is stuff that you wrote as opposed to documents that you reprint? I I, I would think it's it's uh, well, at least certainly half of it. No, no. I, I, there's a lot of I like to I like to back things up with evidence all along the way, and I like to substantiate them so that it, 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 to, to prove my point. The uh, I think the. Uh, I think the, 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 the greatest contribution that I can think of with these is, is, is the synthesis, putting all these variables together, that, that, that's, that's sort of evidence out there that hasn't been, hasn't been synthesized. And, uh, the, uh, and it's remarkable how quickly uh, it all sort of goes away unless it's put together in a coherent whole. And, and, and I give it my best to try and make it into a meaningful, uh, meaningful whole. I think about people like... Uh, Heinrich Schliemann, when he was investigating the, the ruins of ancient Troy, you know, he was he, he was he was confronting essentially a, a, a barren plain, and then he was he started digging down. He called this Troy left Troy four, Troy three, Troy two. He got, kept getting down to the original. So it's like, it's like archaeology in your own hometown. It's like looking at looking at your environment and seeing what's there, and it it, it really takes a, a a trained eye because it it is a 
it's all been largely obliterated by by the by the by the twentieth century. But 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 it is there, and and you can and you can prove it, uh, but but with 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 appropriate uh, trained eye. But the um, the the synthesis of 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 all these all these documents, I think, is is a very important uh, contribution, and and that that is made possible by 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 journalists in the 19th century who were astonishing writers. These people were not just writing um, uh, social tidbits and weather reports. I mean, they were, they were like 10 column articles in, in the newspaper about this, that, or the other, all relating to what, what's going on in our world around us. You reprint a lot of that the, from the Carbondale Leader. There was a column called Gravity Notes. Gravity Notes. You have a lot of that in here. What yes. kind of thing did you find in those columns? Amazing facts. Those those gravity notes, a weekly column of news and notes about gravity, the gravity, um, um, gravity railroad, and I, I included that as as a kind of appendix to it, as as a as a as a source book. In a way, I sort of like to try and sort of create research documents at the same time. There's a lot of stuff in in those gravity notes and and all those weekly newspaper columns, which are appear at the end of each volume. That uh, it's, it's all new information, but the remarkable thing about those notes is, is that they contain facts and, and figures and, and data about the railroad that exists nowhere else. A lot of information about accidents and people dying, uh, a lot of deaths. Exactly, yes. A lot of uh, things like, you know, John Smith was killed at the head of plane number six on Tuesday. That's, that's an important fact to know, that John Smith was a headman at plane number six. So I, re I record that fact, so that fact can then be used in another in another context, and and th throughout those uh, gravity notes, there have been some remarkable, um, unbelievable stuff in them. Articles like uh, on Tuesday, uh, eighteen hundred cars of coal were shipped from Carbondale. This sort of a uh, sort of a, a fact somebody would include in a monthly. That's a very that's very interesting to know. There was eighteen hundred load eighteen hundred cars of coal were shipped on, on a Tuesday you can, in, in tabulation of data about it. And people record all kinds of things in, the, uh, in those columns. A lot of it is about, the, the, a lot of it is about social life, and, uh, but there's a lot of technological things and accidents. And, and uh, John Smith, who was formerly the headman at number nine, is now working at, at the footman on plane six. I like to record those kinds of facts and, and just sort of record the fact. And then the, ultimately, if I live to be 200, I will incorporate that fact in volume one, where, where, where because it's learned after the fact, you know. So I, I, I and I, I, I will, it, it's there to be incorporated at one point by me or maybe by somebody after me. Are you a trained historian, or did you just sort of pick this up along the way? I, I'm a trained. I think I'm a trained. I'm a literary historian. I, 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 I taught for many years literature on, on a college level, and humanities and things. So I. Uh, I have a, have a great appreciation for uh, for academic kinds of things and research. I mean, it's the it's the greatest pleasure of my life. I love doing I love doing research. I I, I work on this DNH stuff four or five hours every day. I must do it, and uh, so it's a uh, I like to create these, these these documents that are 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 a synthesis on a, on a particular topic as well as being a. Uh, a, a, a research vehicle for other people or myself later on. Do you have any plans to put this into a conventional book form? I mean, boil it down to... Possibly, a yes. It, it, I, the, uh, in, in a way, I want to sort of blast my way through the whole 24 volumes and, and, 
get it down, and then the, the pleasure of revision and addition and correction that that can that can that can that can go on forever. But the uh, but I, I like creating a, a a research document. Now, for example, in, in in many of these volumes, these current documents, current volumes, there is a uh, I've I've reprinted uh, fifty or so pages in, in in several of them, each of them, uh, that are from this amazing document that came into our world um, a number of years ago. People leave things at our door at the Historic Society, like sort of a foundling at the, at the doorstep. That's in Carbondale? In Carbondale. A box of stuff. Take it if you want it. Do what, I, I went through this box that looked like junk, and most of it was junk. But then there was this one, one object in the box that had been very carefully wrapped in aluminum foil, and it looked like a sort of store ledger. But I, I did, somebody decided it was special for some reason or other. And when I picked it up, I thought, well, this is probably one of those 19th century ledgers where uh, a merchant, you know, Mrs. Jones, two pounds of tea, nine cents, one loaf of bread, three, you know, that kind of a ledger, a, a store ledger. That would be interesting in itself, but I thought, I wonder what, I wonder what, the, I opened it, I looked at it, I thought, oh my gosh, this is a very unusual document. Very, the quality of the paper was, was uh, it had a high sort of rag content to it. It, was, it wasn't, it was good paper. I thought, what is, what am I looking at? And I opened it up and it was just like an 80 or 90 page sort of ledger of some kind with all kinds of, I, I, I thought, what am I looking at? And uh, I, I, I could see it's a boat number and then it was listed like I could see lumber and then I could see $25. I thought, what am I? Then I realized it was, what that was, what it is, it is a ledger, it's the, it's the, it's the ledger book from the D&H Canal from 1832. It is every boat that left Honesdale it was the ledger held, by, held uh, uh, established by, by, by one man, it's the same scribe, the same hand through the whole thing. Every boat that left the D&H Canal in, in Honesdale, he put the, put the boat number, the captain's name, the quantity, the, the cargo, what it, was, what, it, what it weighed, what it costs, and other details about the shipment. And, uh, it was, uh, and it's for the whole year, which is really, some, there, there are at least Two master's theses that could be done on, on, on this document itself, just because it, it, it's just it's just raw data, but uh, but tons of it about about the canal and what was shipped through the canal, and that came into in, in, into into our world just quite by accident. It, somebody it, they were cleaning out a garage or whatever, and somehow this book had been hiding out for a hundred years, wrapped in aluminum foil, maybe recently, but anyhow, there it was, and it's 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 a remarkable treasure. So it, like these newspaper uh, articles, these newspaper uh, weekly columns, it's, it's largely raw data, but it's, it's, a, it's a gold mine of raw data because it's, it's all new stuff. Nobody's ever looked at it from, from, a, from, a, from a historical perspective. Before we run out of time, I want to talk about this other one of your volumes that we haven't discussed, Working Horses and Mules on the Gravity Railroad. Did they use horses or mules to pull the cars up the hill? In, it, along the way they did, they, uh, the, the, they, used, they used, used them in the mines to pull the coal cars out of the mines. They used, they, they used, a, uh, they had a, uh, they used horses and mules to get the cars from the mines up to the, up to the surface level. They used, they used, they used horses and mules uh, uh, on, on, at the top of the levels, at the top of the plains to move the cars from one end, from one level to the, to the base of the next plane. They used them, they used horses, uh, Essentially, like switcher engines at, at the, in, the, in the yards at, in both home, to move cars around. They sort of it, we would use sort of jeeps and so on today. They used they used these horses to move things on on flat ground, and uh, 
and they used them all the way up until 1859. They finally they, they ended uh, animal power because it was more efficient to uh, have machines doing doing this moving of of of, uh, of, uh, of of coal. But there were thousands of mules that worked uh, in in the mines, uh, moving coal cars, and uh, there were there were mule barns underground where you know hundred mules could be in, in a barn here, and then and then half a mile away another mule barn because they needed all these mules to move the cars to get the coal cars to the base of the plains. And they lived underground? Most of the time they lived underground and... Uh, I learned from your book that keeping the, the animals underground full-time permanently as their home was made illegal in Pennsylvania in 1966. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, uh, the, most, of the, uh, most, of the, uh, most of the mules were taken, well taken care of by, by the miners and by the railroad because they needed them. They, they were like partners in getting, getting the job done. And, uh, so they, they had to take care had to take care of them well and, and mules on, on the canal all the canal boats were pulled by mules and horses thousands of, of animals had to be used to make it to make it possible to move this to move this coal, and uh, and they were used as such until after, up to the time of the Civil War and then then machines began they began to use machines but the uh, but you don't have to you, you have to you have to get, provide some kind of fuel to a machine but you don't have to feed, you don't have to feed it oats and hay and you don't have to take care of it like you would you, like you would a mule. But the, um, but the mules. It's interesting that the, uh, when 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 the, during the periodic strikes and, and labor things, the mules were taken up from below ground to above the ground. I was, I'm always saying hooray for the mules because the mules can get out of the mines, in, into ordinary pastures. And uh, all right, unlike the engines, when there's a strike, you can't just shut them off. <laughs> that's right. So the mules had a holiday when they, when they were they were they were taken out, uh, uh, but but they, they came. They were literally there were thousands of them and. Uh, and they were animal power in the 19th century was w w crucial to the operation of, uh, of 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 the nation. They used them to, they, they, even on streetcars. I mean, they had these 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 tramways. They moved around, they moved streetcars by pulling them with horses. They used all kind horses and mules were 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 a key part of of the uh, of the success of the DNH. But going back to the gravity notes in the Carbondale uh, newspaper. There were a lot of reports of people being kicked by horses and mules, or dying from being kicked. They did, by yes. I mean, and 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 that that's. I mean, animals are not in uh, mules are not inherently nasty. They they become na they, they they become nasty because somebody was probably mistreating them, and uh, or or the conditions were not 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 the best for the for the mule. So that the, uh, but there were a number of people who were a lot of people were were kicked by mules, and and they were and and they almost always were described as being vicious. But they were the made, people or the mules. The mule, <laughs> mule was vicious. I think the maple, the people who treated the mules in, a, in, a, in an inhumane way, were uh, were, were made, might have been vicious. But the, uh, but the, um, but the, but but the mules got the, got the the bad reputation for being nasty. And 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 uh, I was raised around horses and, and mules and things. And 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 they're they're not inherently nasty. It, it, it's I think. It's like dogs. Dogs are not inherently nasty either, I don't think. But they can be made nasty by treatment, you know. And uh, so that the, uh, the 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 mules got a got a bad rep sometimes. But now, volume ten, which we haven't gotten to yet, is the steam line from Carbondale to Scranton. Now, this was a conventional railroad that just went up and down the valley. It was. It it, it was. It was another offshoot of the. Um, the, the the gravity system went from Carbondale as far as Oliphant in 1859, and then they began to uh, to uh, develop coal mines uh, farther south in 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 Scranton, Wilkesbury, and below. 
So they had to get that coal to, to, to Carbondale to get it over the mountain. So it's really, that's a remarkable, another one of those, only Robert knows this facts, <laughs> is that, they, they, that the Gravity Railroad then existed, went from Oliphant, from there all the way to Wilkes-Barre on flat ground, and they had gravity gauge steam locomotives, little small engines, pulling these coal cars from as far away as Wilkes-Barre all the way up the Lackawanna Valley to the foot of plane number 23 in Oliphant. Then they shipped it, the coal through this system, that they, the existing system that they had, because Oliphant was the southern terminus of the canal, or the railroad. So, but they, all the coal from the, down the Lackawanna Valley was brought up to Oliphant, sent over the mountain through the, through the gravity system. So gravity, literally gravity engines and gravity cars being used on flat land. They were, they were being used like later steam locomotives on flat land, but they were gravity gauge. It means they had the narrower, the narrower tracks. But then the steam line between, uh, between Scranton and Carbondale was like, it was like it was a passenger offshoot, the same way the passenger offshoot on, on the mountain, the, on the gravity line over the mountain. Because people began, with all these people coming from all over the world, living in the valley, they were moving around the valley, and instead of taking stagecoaches and things, they, they decided they could then start taking, they, they, the, the, the railroad also established passenger cars, one or two passenger cars to the end of the line in the valley. It took off, it was a huge success. And so the next thing you know, they needed more car and more car, and so they suddenly had this, this the line, at the, at the, the valley line uh, was uh, largely uh, initially passenger travel because the coal was going through the gravity system, but the passengers were going on flat land. Then when they, uh, they closed the gravity in 99, then this flat land... 1899. 1899. The, through the, uh, the, the, the line through the valley, um, they, it was both passengers and freight, and that was the major, that was the, in the end of the 20th century, that was what this valley road became. How long have you been working on this project? For about 15 years, I think, at least. The, uh, the, uh, I began writing uh, nine years ago, and, uh, and uh, I now... I'm on a, the, 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 the ball is rolling now. I've got myself into a, whole, into a, into a, into a work plan where it's, uh, I'm now working on, on, the, on the five volumes that will come out in October of next year, and, that, and that's, that's an interesting... Uh, it, 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 I've, I've, sort of, I've got myself plugged into a process, and it's producing results, and I'm, I'm very happy with, it, with, with the work method. And, uh, but it's a... Um, it is. It is. It, it's a broad story that has not been told, and uh, it's. It, it and it really has to be told because it, because of the unbelievable innovations that the, that the DNH came up with in the course of, of of the 19th century, to make possible what they made possible. This industrialization of America. Well, I wish we could keep talking, but we're out of time. This is the cover of one of the DVDs we've been talking about. It's sort of like a book. Uh, the D&H, Delaware and Hudson Canal Company, Gravity Railroad. And our author is Robert Powell. Thank you very much. My pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.